Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, a no bullshit discussion about reimagining religion and remixing spiritual practices in a way that is secular and inclusive to all. I'm your host, Sanderson Jones. And I'm James Croft. And today we've got a brilliant interviewee on this topic, which could not be more relevant. It is all about how we can live lives bringing our full humanity when those lives are lived online. And in this age of Zoom, in this age of not seeing anyone, it was just great to have that conversation. Our guest is Chris Stedman, and he is the ideal interviewee for a podcast which is about adapting spiritual practices and ideas in a way that is secular. I love talking to Chris Stedman. He's one of my favorite people in the world and he's always got really deep insights. So this was a fun one. First up, he is a humanist chaplain and community builder. He's not religious, but his work is really informed by religious questions and the sort of specific ways that spirituality answers fundamental needs. Uh, he was the humanist chaplain at Yale and has been involved in the humanist community at Harvard. So he's got those bona fides. And then second, he's just written a great book which brings this sensibility to a huge question. And that is, how can we be human online and how can online even help us to be more human the book is called irl finding realness meaning and belonging in our digital lives and it couldn't be more up our street yeah and it couldn't come at a more important time given that we're spending so much time online right now when we're stuck in our homes and i took away so much from this conversation first how we can think about our digital lives as in some ways just as real as the rest of our lives and equally important. I loved how Chris talked about how he found ways to be more vulnerable and honest online, especially given that we're often encouraged to put on a sort of digital mask and hide who we really are. And I learned too much more about how we can think deeply about religion and the things that religious practices might offer us even if we're not religious ourselves. Great. And so keep on listening to the end because there's also a story which James only just told me now, which is really funny. uh, And we should have brought it up when Chris is here. Uh, So just hang around to the end for that. So here's Chris E.S. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Uh, What's what's been happening with you in your day-to-day? Well, I taught my last class of the semester over Zoom. Um, Surprisingly emotional, although I suppose relevant to the topic at hand today. But um, yeah, it was a a bittersweet end to the semester. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm very, it was my first full semester teaching. Um, I've, I've only sort of guest taught in the past. And um, so, yeah, it felt very fulfilling to come to the end, but sad to say goodbye. And was there tears, students crying or just you? Uh, no one was crying as far as I can tell. Although, I, you know, the, a lot of the students have their cameras turned off um, and it's, you know, it's an equity thing um, for a lot of our students. You know, they're not in a position where they can necessarily have their cameras on. So there might have been some silent tears. For all I know, I think you could safely assume that everyone was crying. Uh, Probably like ugly, ugly tears just really had a sort of powerful. powerful That's true. A number of them were on mute as well. So I I couldn't hear the ugly sobs. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, well, you've touched on something that we're going to speak to you about, which is how to live a meaningful life in uh, this online world. And you've got this uh, really uh, interesting background where you sort of actually grew up in a congregation. And that's very interesting to us on the Life on This podcast. But we start off by asking about exactly that. What was your uh, religious, spiritual or philosophical uh, background uh, uh, growing up uh, when you were a kid? So, I mean, I grew up a a nun. Um, this is a term that emerges out of the sort of um, 
demographic study of religion in the United States, so people who, who um, survey religious affiliation in this country um, have this kind of catch-all category for people who claim no religious affiliation when asked what their affiliation is. Um, so an N-O-N-E. Um, and, um, you know, I, and truly growing up, I was a nun in the sense that we, um, we just didn't have a religious affiliation at all. So I didn't hear talk of atheism or um, anything like that in my household growing up, but, uh, but we weren't religious either. Um, we were actually, you know, there's a sort of subcategory within the nuns, which is the nothing in particulars. And that's really, truly what we were. Um, but as you say, um, you know, it didn't, that didn't remain the case um, because when I was around 11, I had a conversion experience and I became a born again Christian. And looking back on that conversion, I think there were two kind of primary factors that set the stage for that to happen. The first one that, God uh, exists and is an <laughs> all powerful force that loves you. Have you been talking to my Episcopal boyfriend? Because <laughs> he says this to me all the time. I have been on Twitter, Chris. I can. Confirm. I know. I know you, you constantly have. talk about the state of your soul. I, I know you have. Well, you two have a great deal in common. Um, many shared interests um, besides being um, congregationally minded. You also love, you know, all things nerdy. <laughs> yes, um, he sounds like a anyway. real stand-up guy. I like him. He, yeah, he, he is. Um, anyway, so there were, yeah, there were two things. The first was that about a year prior to converting, I immersed myself in books that detailed um, some of the sort of greatest experiences of human suffering <laughs> um, in the history of civilization. So I was reading, Goodness. I know, uh, very, I was a very fun 10 year old, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, so I was reading books like Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl, John Hershey's Hiroshima, um, Al uh, Alex Haley's Roots. Um, so and, and, you know, I, I had learned about some of the things described in these books um, in school, but really just as sort of historical events as things that had happened, rather than um, being kind of immersed in the stories of what it was like for people who experienced those things. And so reading these books filled me with an immense desire to understand, you know, what it means to be human in a world where we can be so cruel and inhumane to one another. I felt like I didn't even have the language to begin articulating the questions that were rising up in me in response to these stories. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of piece number one. And then piece number two was that a year later, my parents divorced. And, you know, because we weren't a part of a congregation growing up, my family really was my community. That was where I rooted my sense of self. It was where I found support. It's where I processed um, events in the world and in my life. Um, and, you know, when I lost that, when that was disrupted, I was, I was looking for a new place to root myself. And when I was invited to this after-school youth group by some acquaintances from school, um, lured in with the promise of free pizza. Um, That's how they get you. I, uh, well, that and that that is how they got me. But how they kept me was that they not only gave me a sense of community, a sense of belonging and welcome, but they also um, I felt like I found my people when I found this church because I found people who were similarly obsessed with these kinds of questions, who were similarly troubled by the state of the world. Um, and, you know, even though the God thing felt very unfamiliar to me um, and didn't really sort of align with my own experience of the world, I, I ended up sort of being swept up in it and, and took on everything else as a kind of a package deal because I was like, these are my people. They care about the same things I care about. Um, and they say that the way to understand these things that are so hard to understand is through this theological lens. So I sort of took that on. Um, and it was only later when I eventually went to college to study religion after kind of making my way into a more progressive Christian church um, as I came out as queer and, and sort of, you know, found my way into LGBT affirming churches. It was only once I got to college and started studying religion, um, specifically because I wanted to help people 
explore the kinds of questions that had brought me into the church in the first place um, and, and help people in the way that the ministers who had kind of helped me make my way into more progressive Christian spaces um, had done so. It was only once I was studying it that I was challenged by my professors, all of whom were Christian themselves, to ask myself why I believe the things I believe. And that's when I started to kind of disentangle the function of religion from this one particular sort of form of it, this Christian form. Wow, there is so much in there. I We normally just will go into the lifefulness questions, but I'm going to put a stop there because I... My, uh, so I have a sort of pre, pretty charismatic evangelical connection to life itself. Like the when I go and think about there, we're going to die, and then in my mind there's nothing. It re- like it is a spiritual force in me, and it's just really interesting hearing you speak about that because my mum died when I was ten, uh, and then my dad remarried someone where which didn't lead to a happy home. And I'm just always fascinated by how these like huge tectonic emotional sort of plate shifts underneath can go and transform, uh, transform our whole personalities or like go and help us find ideas which meet those needs. So uh, what's interesting as you say that is that I don't think I ever would have made my way into an evangelical church if I honestly, if I hadn't been queer, which might sound strange to say, but you know, for all of my childhood, I felt like something was amiss. Um, something about me didn't fit with the rest of the world, and um, and I think that's ultimately what drew me to these books about experiences of alienation, of suffering, because I was feeling myself, you know, alienated. And I, I think, you know, in, in part, it wasn't this sort of you know, well of empathy for other people's experiences. I mean, certainly reading those books drew empathy out of me, but but really I think I was trying to solve a conundrum that I myself felt I was in, which is that I don't belong in this world and and I want to understand why and how I might. Um, but the same, you know, the same thing that brought me into the church was also the thing that made it sort of untenable for me to stay um, because as soon as I had to start um, sort of questioning uh, or asking questions of the norms of the community that I had converted into, then, you know, then the sky was the limit on questions. Um, <laughs> and, and ultimately, um, even though the institution where I was studying religion, this, this Lutheran affiliated college encouraged those kinds of questions and could hold space for them. Um, they weren't able to hold space for me to stay. Chris, can I ask you something about, because you said you found your people there. And that, I think, is such a powerful phrase because I think we all want to find our people, right? I certainly feel the desire to find my people and to be with them. And I wonder, it makes me think, does it really matter if you believe the same thing, if you found your people? Like, isn't it a bit of a shame that that kind of comes between people in a way? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is something I feel really strongly about. I've spent a lot of my, you know, career, um, not only as a humanist community builder, so seeking to create spaces and support um, and facilitate spaces where religiously unaffiliated people can sift through these kinds of questions and have a kind of safe, you know, space of their own, but also you know, another large focus of my professional life has been fostering dialogue across lines of religious difference. And so, you know, I I think that, I think that's super important, but I've actually, you know, I've been reflecting on this a lot this year because I'm dating this man now who is in the final stages of preparing to become an Episcopal priest. And um, when I started sharing that news with people in my life, everyone was like, well, of course, like that makes complete sense that you would (laughs) date an Episcopal priest. But and and the contrarian in me was like, well, what do you mean by that? Of course, that doesn't make sense. This is the first, you know, religious person I've ever dated. Um, but as I as I reflected on that, um, I think part of what I've found really refreshing about um, our relationship is that while it's true that every man that I've dated before this has been non-religious like me, they've largely been kind of nothing in particulars. They, you know, they aren't religious, but they don't they haven't really spent a ton of time thinking about it, you know, and they were always very supportive of my work. Um, but, 
I, I didn't have that feeling like they were also obsessed with the, the kinds of questions that I'm obsessed with. And even though um, Matt is his name, even though Matt and I um, have, <laughs> hi Matt, he probably won't listen to this, um, <laughs> but even though Matt and I, well, I do, you know, he can't, he can't listen to everything, come on. But Matt and I have, you know, come to different sort of working conclusions about these questions. Um, but we share, you know, we share a sense that the questions matter, that they're important, that, um, and that our answers to them matter too. I mean, you know, we're not relativists about it. He's not like, well, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. We, you know, we have spirited exchanges about these things, but um, I do have that same feeling of like, this is my people, quote unquote, um, even though we don't, have this, you know, we don't have the same sort of um, operating ideas in some ways. We were, we're equally obsessed with the questions, which I haven't always felt that when, you know, around other non-religious people. Um, I think, you know, it's especially special when I do find other non-religious people who are as obsessed with the questions. And I've had that experience of being in humanist community where I found that. Um, but Ultimately, I think it's more important to me that somebody cares about the questions and is willing to engage them than whether or not we land in the exact same place with our answers. Thanks so much. And uh, after a sort of di- diversion, which I started myself, we're going we're gonna to do our six life on these questions now. Before we do that, I'm just going to share, my, I, there's a lovely uh, friend of, originally a friend of my wife's, who uh, he goes to a very traditional Roman Catholic church in uh, uh, sort of in Lewis in the Sussex countryside and I sort of asked him this question of like uh, do you do you I mean do you feel sort of uncomfortable because of the church's stance on uh, uh, on you know gay people and all the, these issues he goes do, do, do people welcome you he's like I don't think we've got any straight men who come <laughs> <laughs> which i love and fyi that, and i'm not just putting on that voice that's like here that's that's his voice uh the uh and so our six life for this questions boom it's a speed round over big things and so the first one is what is your ultimate meaning what is the value that you hold most sacred so I think at one point I would have said that my ultimate meaning is found in connection, in relationships, in finding a sense of community and belonging. And that's certainly been a huge driver throughout my life. But um, in in the new book um, that we're going to talk about a little bit later in IRL, I use um, The Velveteen Rabbit as this kind of touch point at different points in the book because it was my favorite story as a kid. And um, it's all about this rabbit who is trying to figure out how to become real. And it makes, you know, it's a, it's a useful touch point for the book, which explores this question of what it means to be real in a digital age. But um, I, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I think my understanding of it was that what makes the rabbit real is that the rabbit is loved, um, that the rabbit experiences this intense connection with the, with the, the boy um, who's, whose toy the um, rabbit is. But revisiting it as an adult, I came to see that it's not only that, it's also this experience of loss where the rabbit, you know, the rabbit ends up being discarded by the end of the story because the boy gets very sick and has to get rid of his possessions. And um, so it is both that experience of connection and the experience of disconnection of loss that makes the rabbit real. And I think, you know, I've come to feel that where I find sort of ultimate meaning in my life is this kind of ebb and flow between the moments of connection that help me understand myself in relationship with others, but also in learning from the kinds of things that you can only experience when you're alone, the kinds of questions that only arise in solitude. So I'd say that, I guess for me, the ultimate meaning is this kind of back and forth between connection and disconnection. You nailed a really big question in a very short amount of time, and you're the first person who's been able to incorporate in their answer a plug for their book. Congrats, Chris (laughs) Edmund. You're nailing this promo shit. Uh, and Thank then you. the next one is our translation for sec for worship, celebration and uh, commemoration. Where do you go and find uh, a way to collectively and individually connect with what's most important to you? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it it's probably comes to my mind because I'm missing it so acutely this year in a time of, um, you know, Zooming and, and social distancing. But um, I often find 
going to a, a concert, um, you know, and, and it's not just the hearing the live music part um, and getting this experience, you know, because music is very meaningful for me. Um, I Actually, so there's this Spotify gives you at the end of the year, you're, you're wrapped. It tells you sort of, you know, statistics about what you were listening to throughout the year and it, at including how many minutes you were listening to Spotify. And when I got my wrapped, I was like, well, that seems like a lot of minutes. So I posted it online and people were like, that's over a third of your year <laughs> that you were listening to music this year. Uh, so I listen to a lot of music, but so it's not just the experience of all getting, by Britney Spears. It was not, it was not all by Britney Spears. Um, but so it's it, it, part of it is having this, a special experience of this thing that's really meaningful and getting it in this sort of live setting, but it's also being among all these other people who have a similar kind of, relationship to the music um, and who have find it similarly meaningful. And um, as much as I have really enjoyed some of the the kind of digital gatherings that I've um, been to this year um, and, and think they're sort of equal, they, they have an equal capacity to be meaningful. Um, just as I find meaning in both connection and disconnection, I find meaning in both virtual connection and physical. And I think I'm missing that shared physical experience this year so that's that's one place um where i I experience that kind of thing that's great you're doing so well chris thank you the the lightning round (laughs) yeah yeah it's a lightning round the next one is community life so where do you find your community you spoke a little bit about the importance of community to you so who are those people where do you find them yeah um you know i've always been a person who is um I never, some people have the, the one friend circle where they're all very close friends with each other. I always kind of had friends here and there who many of them didn't really know each other. And I think when I was younger in moments, um, I internalized this idea that um, there was something wrong with that, that it betrayed, you know, maybe um, a desire for me to kind of be different people in different spaces. So, you know, to be kind of fake, depending on who I was with. Um, and as I, and I think I, I had no idea how deeply ingrained that idea was. And I think it's only recently that I've come to recognize that we, that it's actually um, very centrally important that we have the opportunity to be different people in different spaces, you know, to have spaces where we can bring different parts of ourselves to the forefront and meet different kinds of needs that we have. And so I think at one point in my life, I had this kind of idealized notion of community where there was this single space where I could go and truly be myself and didn't have to sort of hide anything. And what I am now coming to, when I think about community, I think about it as this sort of need that we meet in lots of different spaces in our lives, um, that we get a kind of composite experience of community in lots of different ways, um, where, you know, sometimes I need, I want a space where I can be a little bit more silly. Um, Other times I want to be a space I want to have a space where I can be a little bit more serious. Um, And sometimes I want a space where I can be both. Um, But, you know, I think rather than, and, and this, you know, this is something that I think is a big part of this big cultural shift happening right now as people are leaving religious institutions and kind of creating their own, you know, build your own community online and offline is I think some of it, it has to do with the fact that people are being honest with themselves about the fact that they need lots of different kinds of spaces where they can bring different parts of themselves to the forefront. So that's one thing that community means to me. Great. And then the next one is about personal and psychological maturity. Like what does, how are you growing in the, at the moment? Like uh, where is, uh, where and how, and where and how are you doing it? Hmm. It's a great question. I Thanks. <laughs> I feel um, very challenged by this year in all kinds of ways. And specifically, you know, one thing that has felt, um, you know, very, and th- this will kind of, I think, tie back to the first, my response to your first question in this lightning round. Um, but Man, it's not I, that lightning. Your questions are on the flabbier side, but it's okay. We'll keep on going. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I really am. So that's one area. Yeah, that's one area where I can grow, first of all. Um, But I would say, so like, you know, this year I um, am truly recognizing um, how much, because I, you know, I I live alone, I work from home, and I am recognizing how much I really relied on these small moments of interaction 
like going to the coffee shop in my neighborhood and interacting with the people um, who were regulars or who worked there. Um, and, you know, this year I've, I've had to really be very isolated in all kinds of ways. And, and, and my companion, my dog, who I lived with also died very unexpectedly this year. And so now I'm really experiencing solitude in a way that I hadn't before. And, and I think that for a lot of my life, I told myself I was very extroverted, that I really loved being around people. And yet I would find myself drained and exhausted all the time. And I think it's less that I was truly only extroverted and more that I was uncomfortable with being by myself. Because again, when you are by yourself, um, you you know, are confronted by the kinds of recognitions and questions that maybe you're trying to avoid with busyness, with socializing, those kinds of things. And, you know, and I think it, in this moment when the only way I can connect with people for the most part is digitally, I find myself in the first moment of loneliness or boredom reaching for my phone, um, you know, trying to find it get a moment of connection somehow. And I'm trying to learn. Um, and I think in some ways, the circumstances of this year have kind of forced me to do so a little bit more. I'm trying to learn to sit more in those experiences of solitude. Because again, I think that important data arises in those moments, and that it's not just in connection that we become who we are, but also in disconnection. And so that's a place where I'm, you know, I, I think I the recognition is there. I think it's something that's a lot harder for me to actually practice, but I'm I'm putting in the work. <laughs> we'll just use the last sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you go next, James. The next one is serving others. How do you find opportunities to serve others in your life? Yeah, um, I've found a lot of meaning in teaching this year, um, which uh, is something that was not, it wasn't my plan. Um, I was actually approached about teaching this class and, um, you know, and I, and, I think at first I felt very dis disqualified or unqualified, I should say. Um, and <laughs> very different words, <laughs> yeah, particularly different around words. teaching. Uh, yes, I felt very unqualified. Um, but uh, you know, because I was like, I'm a chaplain, not an academic, um, in terms of my professional work. But then I thought about, well, what you know, what is chaplaincy? It's about trying to um, support spaces for people to reflect on really big and important questions in their lives um, that shape how they move through the world. And this class that I teach is all about um, vocation, how students understand what their vocation in life is and um, what vocation means for people who maybe are less familiar with it, or at least you know the way that I understand vocation is that it's the intersection between what you believe um, most passionately and what your sort of skills are and what the needs of the world are and sort of finding where those two things intersect. And so, you know, that's always been the sort of focus of the community building work I've done is trying to help people find spaces where they can reflect on both their own needs and how to go about meeting them, but also to do so in light of what the world needs. Um, and, and to be able to provide that space for students in this other way um, in a way that I wasn't expecting has been surprisingly really meaningful and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. Oh, that sounds banging. You, you look really happy when you're talking about it. Oh, I love that. Uh, so the last question in this is changing the world, like uh, which is also uh, translation of the idea of evangelism. So uh, how do you contribute to changing the world? Yeah, I mean, I again, I try to, um, you know, my hope, so my hope with like with writing IRL, for example, is that, you know, I do a lot of writing just on my own. Um, the way that I kind of figure out what I think about things is kind of writing my way through them. And, and uh, you know, a lot of that's just for me. Um, and, you know, I sort of keep that for myself. The, when I realized that IRL was becoming a book that I might potentially publish because I took eight years between my first book and this book, um, you know, and, and it was only really because I started talking to other people about what I was reflecting on and writing about and working on. And they were like, well, these are also questions that I find myself wrestling with. And, you know, I think that digital space has become this part, this, you know, part of our lives where we spend so much time and where we're doing increasingly important things, things that are really central to the human experience. And yet, we have this idea kind of like, you know, some of the other ideas that I had, I was talking about earlier with community that I hadn't really kind of questioned. We have this idea that life online doesn't count in the same way that experiences offline do, that it's this sort of inferior, shallow 
imitation of life offline. And so we don't bring the same kind of like reflection practices that we might bring to other parts of our lives to digital space a lot of the time. And my hope is um, that the book can be a tool for people to look at their digital life as actually like a very rich space um, full of opportunities to reflect on who they are, what the world needs and how they can, how those things sort of intersect. So that's my hope. Hello, and uh, it's me just on my own for a minute because I wanted to tell you about the Lifefulness community uh, on this podcast. We don't just talk about community, we do it. So uh, we'd love to get you involved. There's two main ways that you can do it. There's one, we've got a course, Lifefulness 101. If you go to lifefulness.io forward slash Lifefulness-101, we've got to get a shorter URL. Uh, you could go and find out more there. And then we've also got Lifefulness small groups. If you go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership, uh, that is, uh, those are rather, correction, uh, ways which you can go and connect. And it is all about sort of building initially these connections online but in time we want to start gathering critical mass you know in your neighborhood or wherever you are then get others nearby and then start to build these communities in person because that is why we do this so go and check it out and now listen to more of the great chris steadman and that hilarious sanderson jones chap Oh, well, look, thanks so much for that. And you have just ended on something which I oh, I had one planned starting question. And then when you were talking, I was like, oh, no, actually, it'll be better to ask him the second one, which I'll say <laughs> it's, still, it's still a goodie. But then you just were talking about we're not bringing the same attention that we do to our in-person lives, to our digital lives. So that seems like an amazing place to uh, kick off. Teach, teacher, teach what... Uh, should we do in our digital lives uh, to go and make them meaningful and rich? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I thought about a lot while working on this book is that, you know, religion um, and, you know, it, there, there's a lot that it's a it's a big topic. There's a lot we could <laughs> say about Famously big topic. <laughs> but one thing you can say about religion is that, you know, re these religious traditions emerged over very long periods of time, and they developed practices, norms, rituals, stories that are all these different sort of tools that people have um, to process their lives and to reflect on their lives. And they prompt people to think about things that are really important. Um, and they they sort of almost, they lock people into reflecting on those questions. You know, my mom, um, I've shared this with you, James, I think, but my mom is, um, you know, not a Lutheran, um, but she goes to a Lutheran church in part because she likes having this space that gives her this regular opportunity to kind of reflect on her life and check in with herself and ask herself whether or not she's actually living in the way that she aspires to. Um, it's this kind of accountability practice. And I think that, you know, religious rituals um, are very powerful at, you know, in terms of helping people do that kind of, bring that kind of attention to their, to their lives. Um, of course, these religious institutions, many of them have wielded that power in very damaging ways. And that's a big part of why we see this, you know, large cultural shift happening. But, um, you know, whatever you think of those rituals, they often work for a lot of people. And I think that online, you know, we are not bringing that, we, because it's so new, we haven't really developed good in the same way that religious traditions emerged over really long periods of time. And, and the rituals that worked, um, you know, are the ones that kind of have, have lasted. Um, the internet is just such a new space. And we have this idea that it's, you know, not it's not real life. Um, and so I think, you know, we're not, we don't really look at our digital rituals, our digital habits as, um, you know, opportunities to become more aware of ourselves, to check in with ourselves. And, and so honestly, one thing that I have started to find very helpful is just going back and looking over um, old posts that I've made. It's almost kind of like a mindfulness practice in some ways. Um, so I, I go back and I look at old things I posted um, which is, I, you know, ge generally, actually, I have an aversion to going too far back because then I start to feel like this is very cringeworthy stuff. <laughs> but um, I find it really helpful because I can start to see, 
you know, what are the kinds of things that I'm posting about most often? What are the kinds of things that I feel like make me worthy when I communicate them to the world? And what does that, you know, what does that tell me about myself, about how I see myself and how, and what I think the world will value about me? Um, and and then to be aware of, um, you know, the fact that, and, and, and I, there's this whole sort of extended riff in IRL where I look at um, the field of cartography and I, I talk about how, um, you know, in cartography, map makers take this complex three-dimensional terrain and they reduce it to something two-dimensional. And that's a process of selection and curation. They have to sort of show what to represent on the map and what not to show, because if they included every detail, the map would be the size of the territory itself. And, you know, when I started using maps as this metaphor for our digital lives and the ways that we kind of map our lives online, what we share and what we don't share, I was really just thinking of it as this kind of parallel um, and say, you know, saying it just as when you create a map, you have to sort of choose what you show and what you don't. We do the same kinds of things online. What I became more aware of as I started studying cartography and interviewing um, map makers and, and reading books on maps is that these aren't neutral choices. Um, that the choices made in in terms of what's important to depict on a map are informed by all these sort of conventions within cartography, which are shaped by the interests of power. And likewise, the ways that we sort of ritualize our lives online, what we choose to, to sort of relay to the world and what we don't, aren't these neutral choices. They're informed by the norms of the platforms themselves, which are not sort of public space in the purest sense, but are private, privately run, privately funded, um, you know, corporations that are designed that ultimately at the end of the day are trying to make money. And so, you know, just as it can be helpful to go back and look at my digital output as a kind of way of checking in with myself and seeing, you know, what am I sharing most often? What does that say about how I understand myself? I also have to be aware that what I'm sharing isn't just, you know, what I think is shaping who I am, but also what I'm being led to share by the sort of algorithms um, that these platforms operate on that are ultimately at the end of the day about making money. So I think just bringing more awareness, not only to your own individual practices, but also the kind of structural realities of these platforms um, is one place to begin. I found it helpful anyway. There's just so much you said there that kind of popped out to me is so rich, particularly during this time when so many of us are forced to be more online than we normally would be. And what I found really interesting about this experience is we at the Ethical Society have obviously have to create our community online. We didn't have any online offerings at all before COVID. And now everything we do is online. And so we've had to be really conscious about thinking, why are we meeting at all? What do we want people to get out of the experience? And how can we try and create that in that in this new space? I wonder if you've had any experiences like that where you've had to reevaluate things in that way. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that you hit on something really important there that I've been thinking about a lot this year because... Of course. <laughs> are you surprised? Of course. Not at all. Um, but I think I've thought about this um, in terms of like, whether it's schools or churches or other kinds of communities or institutions that are basically trying to kind of copy paste what they've done offline and, and just sort of move it to the internet and how that really doesn't work. And um, honestly, this has made me, it's made me think a lot about um, humanist communities because a lot of these humanist communities that have emerged that are, you know, trying to meet this very real need that non-religious people have to gather, to connect, to find a sense of belonging and identity are doing. And, you know, and I, this is me, I've done this in my professional work as a humanist community builder are basically saying, well, let's look at what religious communities have done and try to sort of create a secular version of that rather than, as you say, going back to the sort of the foundational questions and saying, okay, so what needs are these religious communities meeting? And how can we go about meeting them in a way that attends to the very particular reality that we find ourselves in as, as non-religious people? And, and I, I, similarly, I've watched colleagues um, at the university where I teach struggle because, and I feel really fortunate in this respect, because they're trying to take a course that they have taught offline 
for many years and move it into digital space. Whereas because this was my first semester teaching, I was able from the very beginning to say, okay, how can I go about, you know, first of all, what are the important things um, that this class provides for students? What kind of experience am I trying to create? And how can I go about meeting it in this particular format? Um, and, and I think, you know, that's, and that's a big part of why for the last few years, I've been working with these sociologists at the University of Minnesota and UMass Boston who study the religiously unaffiliated because um, I've wanted to get a better understanding of what community even means to religiously unaffiliated people because my sense, my sort of growing sense over the years has been that it's actually something very, very different from, you know, what a religious congregation might look like. Um, and, you know, similarly, I think when we go online to meet our needs for connection, for community, if we try to simply replicate the kind of experience we can have offline in this digital space, we're going to feel dissatisfied because it's not going to give us the kind of experience that we're hoping for. But if we allow it to be its own kind of experience with its own strengths, as well as its own sort of challenges and drawbacks, then I think we can have a much better experience online. And, you know, that is, I've been thinking about that a lot in relation to the sort of humanist community building work that I've been doing for a lot of my career. And I don't have, I definitely don't have answers, um, but I've found it. Oh, well, uh, Sanderson, in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suspect, I suspect you have a lot that you could share in that regard, both in terms of the internet, but also in terms of, you know, trying to sort of support community life for people who have very different needs in some ways than, you know, the people who are seeking out a religious the, uh, community. Might. What you just said neatly leads up to uh, the question I thought of uh, when you were talking and didn't do. This was a question too. Uh, it's a discussion one. Uh, online community okay. is to in-person community as sexting is to sex. Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> um. And well, I, I've sex. never sexed. Yeah, there life. we go. Are you just saying you're just whispering <laughs> that whole question away? No, no, no. Um, no, you can't do that because you don't know how long it took Sanderson to come up with that joke. <laughs> you on the call, so you really have to answer it. Okay, so online community is to in-person community as sexting is to sex. Yeah, I think that, I think, I mean, right, anytime you do one of those yeah. things, it's not going to be an exact one-to-one, -one, but... Caveat, caveat, caveat. I do think that, you know, the general principle holds true um, in the sense that if you expect sexting to be exactly like having sex, you know, in person, well, yeah, it's going to be really bad at sex. But if you let it be its own thing. <laughs> no judgment. I, yeah, no judgment. Obviously. This is a judgment free space. If you let it be its own sort of thing with its own, you know, I mean, there's there's something about sexting that can be really fun and playful and you don't even necessarily have to wash <laughs> your face beforehand or what, you know, all the things that you might brush your Let's teeth. Look at the pros um, as well. You know, uh, put, put on deodorant, um, What you know, whatever you might do. Uh, not everyone's going to put on deodorant. Obviously, some people don't want that. I do think that, and likewise, like I think with community online, sure, we all are aware of the drawbacks. We are aware, very keenly aware this year of the limitations, but there are also so many things about the ways we can find community online that are, um, that are profoundly real. I mean, I, you know, I, I think often about the fact that when I was, you know, a young closeted queer person um, who felt unsafe sharing that information with anyone else in my life, you know, the very first people that I, ever told I was gay were people online. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, there are, um, you know, that it's much more accessible um, in all kinds of ways. Um, and, and this, one of the things I most enjoyed while working on IRL was I, I interviewed a lot of people about their digital lives. And a theme that came out again and again was how people find the internet to be a space where they can express parts of themselves that maybe they have a harder time bringing into other parts of their lives. And it helps them get that experience so that they can maybe try to bring it into other parts of their lives if they want to as well. And so sometimes people look at, you know, digital community as, as escapism. It's like, you know, you're escaping into a fantasy of some sort, but if it's escapism, 
it's often escapism from a world that is highly restrictive around the ways that we are, you know, are allowed to express ourselves. Um, and similarly, I think everyone, well, I, whatever, I've had this experience, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes, you know, in sexting, I might feel more comfortable articulating a desire that I'm maybe more afraid to say face to face. And, you know, if they're not into it, then I can, you know, close the text and and that's fine versus in person i you know i face this risk of of rejection of embarrassment and it's not that you can't experience those things online too but it can sometimes be an opportunity a space where you can try out or experiment or practice things um, that might feel harder to do in other parts of your life are you wearing the nappy and have you drunk the motor oil yet no 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 anyway no 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 that was meant for someone else sorry 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 i don't want to i don't want to yuck your yum but that sounds pretty (laughs) yuck your yum i love it uh one word that you've been using and we've been like been playing with is this idea of being real and i love that idea of actually how can we yeah how like how can people use the internet to be more real and to go and find more meaning? It it does seem to be something which is held up in opposition to each other, you know, the uh, slightly because of the life flattening way the the platforms are structured. So you're meant to have a personal brand, like in, you're obviously not meant to, but in, you know, that's the advice when you go out there, you have to be like this, go make sure you've got the same colors, you know, pretend you, you're your LinkedIn profile, sort of go and, you know, if you're too many different people, then who are you? People don't quite get it. And so, yeah, how can people use the internet and the digital world to be more real and find more meaning? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, we, as you say, you are incentivized to have a very coherent online identity. And often you see people punished when they deviate from that. Um, And so, you know, in many ways, um, that feels like a very challenging thing. Um, And, and, you know, I had all kinds of anxieties because for years I had a very coherent online identity. It was laser focused on you know, the, my professional work and the interests um, associated with, um, you know, what I did for work. And, and yet, uh, you know, I've always been so much more than that, right? Like we all are. And I, I had all this anxiety around, you know, what was appropriate to bring to digital space or not. And, you know, IRL really came from this period in my life when so many of the things that I thought defined who I was as a person, uh, many of them were things that I would post about online. My, my job um, as a humanist community builder at Yale, my long-term relationship, you know, all of these things sort of came to an end kind of at, at once. And I felt like as I was going through this period of transition, of loss, of change, there were all these things I was experiencing that I felt like I couldn't bring to my digital output. Um, and I, 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 I was afraid that, you know, I would disrupt the, the sort of coherent identity um, in some ways. And, and yet, I, you know, I, eventually I sort of was forced just by the sort of immensity of what I was feeling to, to you know, start sharing some of it. And uh, what I found was, um, you know, twofold. I found one, that no one else was thinking as much about my digital output as I was. Um, you know, no one else is like, keeping as close of an eye on whether or not what you're posting is coherent and consistent as you are. Um, But also that, yeah, maybe I was punished in the sense that some of the people who followed me because they thought I was just this one thing um, fell away. But also, you know, I I found that I I was having a much better experience online and I was connecting with people in much more um, genuine ways as I started to bring more of myself to my digital output. And it totally changed my experience of the internet. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that in order to be real online, you have to share it all. I think it's actually really important to have parts of your experience in your life that are just for you or just for a close circle of people. Um, But I think that you should feel like you can bring things that you want to bring to digital space um, and not feel like you're going to be punished for that. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned this earlier when talking about community, but, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is there is no real me. There's no sort of one true me. I've always been a composite of different selves, the self that I am in this space, the self that I am with my 
Episcopal boyfriend, the self that I am with my mom, um, you know, and, and it's not as if one of them is real and the others are fake. It's that who I am is all of these different selves. The challenge of the internet is that we have to somehow, we have to pick one of those selves as the self that we share online. That's kind of the idea. Um, and who I share online needs to be someone who can be acceptable to my mom, to my boyfriend, to my students, to any potential future employers I might have. And so when confronted with that challenge, we respond in one of two ways, or we can respond in one of two ways. We can either flatten ourselves out, as you were saying, and present the sort of safest brand, the most simplified version of ourselves, or we can just embrace the chaos and accept that, you know, we're not going to be for everyone and not everyone's going to be for us. And that's okay. That, you know, me being who I am and feeling like I can express what I want to express about myself. Um, you know, if that, means that someone else isn't into it that's you know that's part of what it means to be a person is to navigate all of that and i'd, I'd rather risk being rejected being hurt than um you know feel like i can't bring who i am to this part of my life that is increasingly a huge part of how i you know situate myself in the world the internet i just love listening to you talk about life chris because you're so reflective and i feel like I learn a lot from listening to how you think about life. And I always kind of come up with resonances. Like I really feel like I, I've been a person who throughout most of my life has been desperate to be liked by everyone around me. And now realizing as I get older that that has, has meant that I have not always shared the fullness of myself with people or I've tried to twist myself into a version that I think they will like. That's not a great way to live. At least it's not a way that I want to live uh, all my life. And so what you're saying, what you're saying is you're, you're gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm coming out. This is my coming out. Don't make fun of it. Sons. And this is a no, big sorry, deal. Okay? I thought that Chris had also spotted about like, I've always tried to really be liked. What I admire about you, Chris, is you've got so many enemies and <laughs> <laughs> you don't give a shit about the fact well, that everyone hates you. <laughs> or I do give a shit and I you just do. still, yeah, Still, no, but but it is. I mean, I was joking about the gay thing, but I really do think like, you know, the IRL is a very gay book. Um, and part of that is because I'm gay, but also part of it is because I think that it's sort of inherent to the gay experience, this kind of, you know, feeling as if you have to compartmentalize yourself. And, and I think that that's also sort of inherent to the experience of digital life. But it's also, you know, and, and and yet it's also like, I think just as I have found healing around my like, you know, trauma of growing up gay in a world that asked me to, you know, compartmentalize, um, I have found healing in, you know, bringing, you know, in, in trying to sort of resist, both resist that and also accept that, you know, that is also just part of, part of who I am, um, you know, that I that wanting to be liked or wanting to present different versions of myself doesn't mean that I am, you know, fake doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It comes from a really real place in my experience. Um, and rather than responding to that judgmentally, you know, I think that the, the way forward is to recognize it and, and, you know, and not let it sort of dominate your, experience of life and 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 so the reason irl is such a gay book is because i think that 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 translates to our digital life it's like yes online it's really easy and and it's not a sort of a personal a sign of personal failure or shortcoming to want to present a certain kind of self to the world but um and and it's okay to do that i mean i still do it it's not as if i put all my business out there all the time and i still do want to be liked and i still you know, am bothered when somebody doesn't like me, but I try not to let that dictate the choices that I make um, around, you know, sort of how I share myself with the world. I can, I can acknowledge those feelings. I can um, non-judgmentally recognize when they have affected my behavior, but I can also try to sort of choose another way forward at all times. And, and I, you know, I think, being gay has that's one of the biggest things it's taught me chris can i ask you something very directly related to our project of lifefulness this kind of this recreation of the goodies of religion in a way that everyone can enjoy them 
I'm wondering, you're someone who is probably closer to this work than many of our guests, who's directly actually worked with the creation of communities for people who are not traditionally religious with your work at Harvard and then at Yale. Have you stepped away from that with this book? This seems like a slightly different um, approach to things, like that, that it's not directly related to that, at least. Is that something that you still intend to come back to? Or how do you feel about that work now, having been engaged? Oh, you're laughing already. I know. This this sounds dangerous. What do you think about it? You're like, it's shit. <laughs> I, don't, like I don't want to do it not- anymore. I've given up entirely on that crap. Well, I was laughing because it felt like a career counselor moment, but, um, <laughs> or like, well, anyway, I will say, I'll say this. I, um, it's kind of like what I was saying earlier about teaching. Um, my, my ultimate desire, and this is, you know, kind of what brought me into the church in the first place when I was younger, what motivated me to study religion when I went to college and ultimately what, um, you know, was was the reason I decided to become a humanist community builder is, you know, I think that these kinds of questions matter. I think these kinds of conversations matter. I think it's important to step out from the kind of busyness of our day-to-day life and, and take time to really pay attention. Um, I love that language of attention that you used Sanderson. I, I, I think it's, you know, and that's, um, I actually end the book by talking about experiences I've had over the last few years of um, helping to take care of my stepdad who has Alzheimer's and how in the work of, you know, of being with him, being present with him, I have to pay a lot of attention to him, to what's going on around us um, and how, you know, how that experience is really different from the busyness of my, you know, my Twitter timeline, my, you know, so much of my professional work and, and how, um, you know, how valuable that is um, taking that time to kind of stop and pay attention and see what, what arises. And so, you know, that ultimately the, you know, the importance of those kinds of questions, those kinds of spaces that has always been the driving force um, behind, you know, what I want to do in life. It was the driving force behind this book and so, you know, right now, yeah, it doesn't necessarily look like explicitly creating humanist communities, um, which it once did. But I, I do think that at the end of the day, the the motivation remains the same. Um, and, and I think that it's, you know, I, I think that the work that you two are doing is super important. And I'm not just saying that to butter you up. So you give me a good edit or whatever. But um, <laughs> edit? I, you think someone edits this? <laughs> we just put it out. I know. I just, put it out raw, Chris. That's you know, yeah. Not, we we all since you don't have we it, were all say, thinking it, Chris. But by the way, I'm still trying to work know, out I, on this podcast because I have described it as on being <laughs> gone day drinking. Uh, I've described it as thought of thought for the day after a few pints. I really love these. Co- <laughs> and I like these conversations, how you have them. Like, let's say you go to a conference and you're a few drinks in and you can talk about the sort of like smart stuff and the stuff which is important. And yet at the same time, you can switch and you can uh, make the sort of uh, make the joke you would make if someone's just said putting out raw. Uh, and uh, and then there's a part of me which is in this podcast going, OK, well, uh, OK, we had that swearing earlier but I think that's fine. This one seems to be maybe a bit different. It could be, uh, uh, I could go and hear it with, and by the way, this is going to be live. I could, uh, this could be heard by someone who works in a corporate. We go and work for them. Uh, there's right. also someone who comes along. There's also going to be people who are listening who uh, that might be too far for them. Then again, there's going to be other people who are like, oh, at long fucking last, a podcast where I can talk about this stuff in the way that I want. And it's exactly like that little moment as we're trying to sort of right. calibrate around these different audiences and competing. Exactly. And I have not yet uh, achieved the sort of Buddha-like enlightenment that you have on this. I drive myself into <laughs> I definitely haven't either, but I will say that that hyper-monitoring of the self, it's so seductive and it's so, I mean, it's baked into the world that we live in mm. right now um, to sort of be constantly f- filtering anything you say or do through this. But as I was saying before, I found that as soon as I sort of let go of some of that, I expected this big sea change, like, you know, that I was going to suddenly lose all these opportunities and whatever. And, you know, it just didn't happen. I, I, I really do think that, um, you know, I, 
I, I, and, I, and I think that just as it is important for people who, to have, who want a very different kind of space to have that space, I, that's not necessarily the kind of space that I'm, I'm, you know, where I feel most at home. And, and yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, this, this is going to sound, um, uh, well, whatever. I'm obviously not afraid of a little plug, <laughs> plug before you even prompted me to, for I mean... IRL, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I was thinking the other day, someone asked me about like reactions to the book and I was thinking about, well, what's like the most, they were like, well, what's the thing you've like heard most so far? And I think the word is surprising. The like that that's been the kind of the, the most common thread in the responses to the book so far, um, which I feel really happy about because my goal book is that someone picks it up pieces about digital life, which it is. But what it really is about is using digital life as a lens to to consider the kinds of questions that we've always wrestled with from you know the very beginning of human civilization. Who am I? How do I show up in the world? How do I be in relationship? How can I be in relationship with others in a way that, um, you know, takes their needs into account? All of these, you know, really fundamental questions. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that the, you know, just as I think it's really important that humanist communities exist for people who are going to walk in the doors of a humanist community, I think it's also important that these questions, um, that people who are never going to seek out that kind of a space have opportunities to think about these things. And so IRL, you know, I think it's just a way for, it was a way for me to process my own questions about, you know, how digital life is impacting my understanding of who I am, what it means to be a person. But my hope, and, and you know, this is why, like I said, I only publish something if I think it can be useful or, or I hope it can be useful. My hope is that it, it provides an opportunity for people to think about the kinds of questions that, as I think we all agree, are, are important questions and and not questions that you know only people who are willing to step in the doors of a of a church or even a humanist community um, get a chance to wrestle with. Oh, that is great! Hey, Chris, thank you so much for that. That was uh, wonderful. Uh, James, do you have a last question which is on your mind? I don't really have a question. I just really want to recommend that people who listen to this get the book. It's a wonderful book and a moving one and whenever i read it i'm always this is there's no way to say this without seeming patronizing but you know that i don't tend to be patronizing chris has written two books which combined have more wisdom in them than most authors do in their whole writings and he's like you know i don't know barely 30 years old it's amazing that's not true first of all i'm 33 <laughs> Second of all, that wasn't that wasn't patronizing, but also you can go back and remove my. Own <laughs> that, that'll, that'll, that'll do. do. Uh, that'll well, do. Uh, I haven't even brought up the my disdain for people who publish memoirs before they're twenty five, and I think I avoided. Uh, I think I've I kept to that. Uh, so. Uh, Hey, uh, Chris, thanks so much for that. I would just like to say thanks uh, for blessing us with your presence. Uh, I have really enjoyed your work, both seeing what you're doing in communities and then uh, the books that you have written. And I just hope that you can keep on doing that, keep on going and translating that love for the big questions and engaging people wherever you can find them. Uh, and thanks so much for engaging our listeners and uh, all of us. Chris? You were great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me and, and for all you're doing uh, to foster space for those kinds of questions too. Bye. Yay. Hey there. And thanks for listening. Um, I love that conversation. Uh, Chris is super interesting, very smart, and then also a lot of fun. Uh, I think that was right in the sweet spot of slightly filthy, funny, and then also philosophical. All of the fuzz. I realise now I should really tell people at the start that there are uh, occasional swears within. Uh, I say at the beginning, it's a no bullshit discussion. Maybe that's enough. Like it's the first four words you hear. People will be clear about that and so at the as you know at the end of every podcast i do a bit of a reflection of where we are in the life on this project because james and i aren't just talking about this stuff we are you know building it and the big thing this year was not this year uh was that 
I have been doing this thing, the Facebook Community Accelerator, where they select 100 of the highest impact community leaders in the world. And uh, that was me. And it builds up to this pitch day, which was only three minutes. I had to go and sort of like show exactly what I was doing, explain where the Lifefulness Project was going and explain what a difference uh, the six-month program had made. And it really did. Like the disappearance of live events training, public speaking, workshops with bloody coronavirus. Look, I know I'm not the biggest victim in this whole affair, but I'm certainly top three. Yeah, that really exploded my year. But uh, yeah, so uh, I had to go and sort of talk about what we've done. This podcast is part of it. The small groups are part of it. The Lifefulness 101 course is part of it. And then you have to go and boil all of that down into three minutes. You end up like the guy who was doing giving us advice was like, uh, watch Hamilton because you'll uh, hear that in hip hop, people are able to compress a lot of information into a few words. And so you're almost speed reading it. It feels very odd. Uh, but the weirdest thing was that at the end of it, like and these to these various great and the good and Every single other person on the cohort, when they finished, I was like, oh, what about this? What about this? Really digging. You use the number 3.9 for your CTV and your CAC and your LT, whatever it might be. But have a. And then I, f- I finished. And, uh, you know, like we're, we're talking about like building secular congregations. This is, I think, something which is pretty, you know, it's of interest inherently, yet alone, like part of your job is to go and kick the tires on whatever I've been doing. And then uh, there was just like very few questions afterwards. And it is really, it really got into my head. Because so, it's not like, you know, it's, it's like being ghosted if you're in, uh, if you're dating. Like you just don't know what to do with the information. It's like, well, did you, did you love it so much that you were just like, no. Oh. Uh, well, I've heard enough. Uh, show me where to sign and let me fund the fuck out of this guy. Or... Was it because they hated it? And they're like, oh, God, I just, even if I have to hear his voice again, I might be sick. So, yeah, quite mysterious. Uh, anyway, that was uh, what most of the week was building up to. And uh, then I guess in the community side of things, the Lifefulness community, yeah, we're uh, the Lifefulness 101 course. That is, you can still go and find it at lifefulness.io. Well, you can find the info and the link. Really excited to be putting that together, starting to interview the people who are joining. Uh, there's still the Lifefulness small groups as well. And today we're getting to the end of the first pilot group. So that's going to be quite emotional, really. So, um, yeah, that's where we are with the Life on This podcast. Thanks so much for listening. There's, uh, as ever, go and find us, um, you know, on uh, Instagram and on the Twitter and on the Facebook and Google the Life on This project. We'd love to speak to you, so get in touch. Uh, as ever, thanks to so many people. Thank you to James Croft, my amazing co-host. Thanks to Mav Shetty, the editor. Thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork and Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the brilliant music that you're listening to oh, right now.